hard to be an agent of reconciliation. It's hard to press in when someone has hurt us instead of pulling away. It's radically different than retaliation. We cannot manipulate our life from the outside hard enough to manifest the life of Jesus for the world. Just to, just to push it over the edge. Thanks for being here today. My name is Dave. I am the pastor of mobilization here, which means I oversee our missions and our service and prayer and worship, kind of the areas where faith and action intersect. And we have a special privilege this morning before we jump into our sermon. I have a dear friend of mine who is here. Um, his name's Andy, and he is a entrepreneur and a humanitarian and doing some amazing work in Uganda. And it's really our privilege to have him with us because what he is doing really embodies a desire of what we would like to see come out of here, where he is highly educated, bright, motivated, fairly young person, and... Um, really and loves the Lord and is using his skills and his passion to help transform uh, the world for good. And so would you guys be kind enough to welcome my friend Andy Agaba up. So Andy, you work in Uganda, you're from Uganda, and you're here today with us this morning. Could you tell our friends a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Hey, how are you guys? Uh, my question is, how many of you have been to Uganda? One hand. Then another hand. How many of you want to come to Uganda? That's good. More hands. Yeah, so I uh, was born and raised in Uganda. Uh, it's the most beautiful place on earth outside of Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then I started uh, an impact investing organization called Hinga, which means to cultivate in my language. And what we do is we invest in small, medium-sized businesses as a means to create employment and uh, help people to uh, create livelihoods for their families. I, I believe that God created us to work and that through work, uh, we actually get involved in the redemption of all things. And, and so our work also gives us the opportunity to uh, train and coach these business owners uh, to be redemptive in how they work and how they serve uh, the people that they serve. And then we also share the gospel with those that don't know the Lord and disciple the ones that actually already follow the Lord. And uh, through that process, obviously, are able to get discipled as well. Man, that's awesome. So you guys help entrepreneurs 
both with financing for small and medium-sized businesses. You help them with some mentorship as well as discipleship. That's correct. That's great. Um, can you talk a little bit about the fields that you guys work in? Like, what are some entrepreneurial stories of people you've connected with and how your organization has helped them? Sure. So we work in different uh, fields or sectors, uh, but we find ourselves playing a lot in uh, the agribusiness sector, so funding uh, agricultural entrepreneurs. And that's very natural because almost everybody there is a farmer or has a piece of you know, land or real estate. And so about 33% of our capital goes into uh, agriculture processes and things like that. Uh, education is another one. So, uh, you know, we think that school owners really are the major social entrepreneurs there. They provide uh, education for, for learners and parents are able to pay for that education. So it's affordable for the most part. And, uh, and then healthcare. Healthcare is such a very challenged uh, uh, sector and we love to participate in that. I'll give you two examples of entrepreneurs in both uh, uh, agriculture and uh, healthcare. So in agriculture, one of the people that I'm really excited about, she's uh, a young woman and her dream was is to empower thousands of coffee growers. And uh, she realized that the coffee growers knew how to plant coffee, but they didn't know how to uh, go through all the other processes of improving the crop so that it's high quality. And if it's high quality, then it attracts a really high margin. And, and so she came to us, she said, you know, if we could get some of this equipment to help these farmers clean this coffee better, we will train them, we will mentor them, and this will improve their lives. So we provided capital to get that equipment. And the crop obviously improved to the extent that Gloria right now uh, uh, pays at least 35% more for coffee than any other sourcing of coffee in the East African region. Come on. By the way, that's true. And, uh, <clears throat> but Gloria also employs 65 people directly in about six locations of coffee shops, the best coffee that you ever taste. How many of you love coffee? Oh, how many of you want to go to Uganda now? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so we are really excited about Gloria, and she's uh, a missionary at heart. She knows how to do business, uh, but she also knows how to use business as a platform to advance the kingdom. And then we have this hospital that we fund uh, that is going to have a tremendous impact in maternal health. So in Uganda, where I come from, infant mortality is 43%, right? 43%. Now, I'm a father of three... Uh, babies or children, uh, and so if they are born in Uganda, there's a, you know, four in ten chance that they might not make it, and that's not acceptable. But we have this entrepreneur uh, who is a doctor at OBGYN, very highly trained, very motivated, 
and he's been building a hospital to uh, provide care to mothers and children. And so we are coming alongside him uh, to help expand his six-bed hospital or clinic facility into a 100-bed. Now, last year, this facility saw 36,000 patients. So in a 100-bed facility, we think we'll be seeing about 200,000 a year. And we also want to use that as a channel to share the gospel. So we're hiring a chaplain to be situated at this hospital. So maybe 5% of the people that come through the doors will also have access to the gospel. So not only come and get physical care that they need, but more importantly, the spiritual care that we all need. Uh, and there is 150 other examples like those that we work with. That's awesome. I mean, you're doing amazing work where you're having a kind of multifaceted impact where you're looking for redemption in the marketplaces to have impact on people's lives and jobs and economies while also, you know, this is fueled because of your commitment to Jesus and looking for their spiritual flourishing as well. Um, Andy, how did you decide that this kind of infusion of capital was the way to go? Like, I mean, there's lots of different ways people are humanitarians, lots of different ways that people try to have impact on the world around them. Why infusion of capital and training? Sure. So uh, the, the way I got into this work, uh, my last name, Agaba, is it on the screen somewhere? Yeah. Uh, it means God gives and God takes away. And I got this name because two weeks before I was born, my father was killed. And so I was raised by a single mom uh, that was poor. We grew up in a village, and it was really, really hard uh, to, to survive. But she was also a hard worker and uh, an entrepreneur at heart. And when I was uh, uh, probably 11 she thought, man, if I could start a little business, maybe I'll make a little bit of money and send these kids to better schools than what we had in the villages. And if these kids can go to school, then I will break the cycle of poverty. That was her, uh, that was her, uh, her vision. And so she started this little business, uh, you know, and soon that little business turned into our our diversification where she invested some money into a small farm and we were making money and that was really pushing us. And so for me, my education came then because I realized that that was the difference between me and, and so many other kids in the village who didn't have the same opportunities that I had. So the idea that we had a job or a business that was creating that job and then these other people didn't have uh, was very uh, formative in my life. And so by the time I was probably your age, I was already dreaming. I'm like, man, uh, I need work in this world where people can access capital and provide employment, provide, uh, provide for their families. And, uh, and at a broader uh, macro level, obviously participate in uh, uh, economic development of, of, of nations. So I started dreaming and believing God and praying and saying, hey, help me to actually pursue this. 
So at, at all levels, uh, it's just my experience of growing in poverty and having this mother that worked hard and taught me and having this faith and belief that God could actually also use me to, to do that beyond our own micro level that brings me here. And, uh, and I get a kick out of it because it's really fun to see uh, that just our limited efforts have incredible uh, value to communities. That's awesome. And if we're, you and I are talking and dreaming and planning about how Campus House as a community can help support the work that you're doing in Uganda, what are some practical ways that you, know, you think college students can help with what you guys are up to? So the, the practical ways, I think the, the biggest thing that we want is for you guys to come. Come and see. Come and be. You know, come and fellowship. Uh, and come and see what's happening and what God is doing. Uh, because when you go, when you see, uh, I think it bathes so many ideas and, uh, and collaborations and partnerships that you know, that we can't even begin to discuss now or, or even imagine. So I would encourage you, come. Whatever you're studying, whatever skill that you bring to the table, we need it, you know, it's necessary. And uh, I know that when my countrymen uh, and women, uh, younger people your age or even older or even younger, uh, get to get to fellowship together and get to learn from you, there, you know, that could have a tremendous impact. And so whether you're a nurse or whether you're a business major or technology, uh, we need all that, you know? And, and, uh, and you might think, oh, going for a week is not gonna change a whole lot. No, it might change everything for somebody there, so. That's great. So we're going, to be, we're going to be working to put together a trip here probably January of next year. And so stay tuned for that. Um, Andy will be here for a little bit after um, if you want to chat with him and make a connection. And um, just before we go, Andy, what, uh, what advice do you have for the people in this room? I think the real question is what advice do they have for me? <laughs> uh, I told the guys earlier that, you know, just graduate, you know, that's, uh, if, if for nothing else, you know, just finish, you know, it's, uh, it's going to do you much good. Uh, but uh, more importantly, uh, do not be anxious about anything, you know, and that, that's the command uh, from, from our Lord, it's like, do not be anxious. And I think uh, being in college, and even after college, and generally being in life, you know, it's, we are very tempted to be anxious about almost anything, almost about everything. And, uh, and it really does not help us at all. And so the pressures are there. Uh, you know, the temptation to compare yourselves, it is March. We are in this social media thing where, you know, uh, which doesn't help things at all, but I would encourage you, uh, you're special, you're perfect, 
in the sight of God, uh, just don't bother so much about what the world thinks uh, or what people around you are thinking. Just, you know, set your heart right, give it to God, don't be anxious, don't worry, and when you worry, remember just to give all those worries to God, for he cares for you and me. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks. So, we're in a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount out of Matthew 5, and uh, I don't have slides today, so if you want to follow along in your Bibles or on your phones, feel welcome to do that. We're going to be in Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. But if you were here with us last week or not, it's a review or new information, Uh, we talked about how Jesus came to be the fulfillment of the law, that the bottom line of the law is to love God and love your neighbors, love other people. And there's all these additional rules and regulations that are added on to shape and demonstrate what's love and what's not and how to operate as God's people. And so Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law, but to be a fulfillment fulfillment of the law. And as we continue on in Jesus's teaching this week, we're going to see that Jesus's teaching isn't random, uh, that Jesus doesn't just have a bunch of pithy little statements that he throws out, that he is in fact a brilliant teacher. And the way that he goes about forming his teachings and arguments is brilliant, and he's actually going after something. So when we read the Bible, we can read it beyond just a pithy little statement or a quick application point, but we can read it understanding that an absolute genius is making a point. And I think the point that we're going to see today is really about love of neighbor and love of other people. That really what Jesus is getting after is what does a fulfillment of love really look like? And not just in an abstract concept, yes, love your neighbor, but he goes right to the heart of the issue and grabs on to some of the issues where it's most difficult to love other people. So, Jesus, would you help us to see it? Would you help us to understand what it is that you're getting at, and would you give us a renewed vision of what life with you looks like? In Jesus' name. Okay, uh, I'm going to read the passage 21 to 26, but then we're also covering same Matthew 5, 43 to 48. So uh, Matthew 21 says this, You have heard it said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come quickly, come and offer your gift. 
Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And then he goes further in verse 43 and says, You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So I was thinking about titling today's sermon, Be Perfect, and just leaving it at that. Um, Which doesn't feel very uplifting, frankly. That is really hard. What he just laid out is about anger, about reconciliation, and about loving enemies. This is like really difficult. And so he says, okay, I've come to be the fulfillment of the law. This is what loving your neighbor looks like, about reconciliation, it's forgiveness, and it's love of unlovable people. So let's see what he says about that and how we're going to get there. So he starts off in 21 and says, you've heard it said that those of ancient times you shall not murder and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, if you're angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. If you insult them, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. What is going on here is a couple things. First of all, anger. Why do you guys think we get angry at people. What do you think the, the, the source of anger is in our lives? This is interactive, so you can throw it back. Why do you get angry? Inability to act. That's good. What else? Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. These are really good answers. So we can get angry when there's an inability to act, when we feel just like trapped in a situation. When somebody hurts you, there's different things go differently than how you want when there's a miscommunication and you're missing each other a couple of things I put around it is when there's a perceived injustice when something goes wrong and happens and it looks like it is unjust or when a goal is thwarted so anger in and of itself is not inherently a bad thing in Ephesians 4 Paul tells us to be angry, but not to sin. He says, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not make room for the devil. Anger in and of itself is not evil. 
It is an emotion that comes from things like what y'all shared. When things go wrong, when there's a perceived injustice, when we're unable to do what we want to do or strive to do in a situation, oftentimes we can be anger. But what Jesus is talking about here is being angry with someone in close community and fellowship, with someone in the body of Christ. He says, if you're angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. If you insult them or if you slander them, there are consequences. And this is not how life in God's family is supposed to go. That we can run into situations that make us angry. We can have a miscommunication with a brother or a sister. Someone can do something that actually hurts us. And there is a different sort of call in God's family. Because what's happening here is we get angry and then you insult them. Well, you get angry and you pass a judgment against them. You insult them and then you slander them. And what's happening is you end up putting yourself in the role of God as kind of head of the family where you're getting to choose. I am the one who I get mad. I can figure out the injustice that has happened or the way this person has harmed me. I'm going to pass a sentence of judgment against them. And then I'm going to punish them by calling them a fool. God gives a different way of doing this. In Matthew 18, Jesus teaches about how it's important to actually deal with the things that cause anger or deal with the areas that people have hurt us. He says, go and talk to the person privately. Like actually press in instead of pulling away. So often when, they're, when we're hurt, the temptation is to pull away in our own anger, to pass judgments against them in our hearts, and then to slander them to other people so we can feel vindicated in our judgment. Jesus gives us an upside down way of approaching that. And he says, instead of pulling away, press in, go and talk to them. And if that's not working to solve it out, bring some other people in. And if that's not working it out, go and ha go to the leadership of the church to help you figure it out. It's this radical call to press in rather than pull away, to seek peace rather than residing in anger or bitterness. In uh, Ephesians 4, it says again, it says, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not make room for the devil. And in Ephesians 4.30, it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice. Instead, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So instead of pulling away in anger and residing in bitterness, our job is to press in in love and to seek for reconciliation. He gives something else in 23. He says, so when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go first and be reconciled to your brother and sister, then come and offer your gift. This is really important. He's saying, if you have done something to harm someone and it comes to mind, what's more important 
than completing your religious duties is to go and seek reconciliation with that person. And that the impetus is on us as the believer to be the agent of reconciliation in that situation. That we are to be peacemakers. And so that if we know that we have done something to cause division, we've done something to harm someone else and it comes to mind, go and take care of it with utmost importance. Jesus is literally saying it's more important that you go and take care of that than completing your religious duties. And so both of these are hard. It's hard to be an agent of reconciliation. It's hard to press in when someone has hurt us instead of pulling away. And Jesus doesn't pull any punches. It gets even harder as he says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. He just takes it a step farther. Because I think in some aspect, we could say, you know, I could work on this. I could really work on pressing in when I'm hurt. I could really work hard on doing this. Maybe, you know, it, it'll take some gumption and I need to really bear, my, bear the burden and press in when I've hurt somebody. But you know what? I can maybe gear myself up enough to do that. But if you've ever had an enemy, if you've ever faced persecution, even if someone who is out to get you, out to harm you, out to steal your research, you know, like... Like difficult things. And, the, and what Jesus is telling us is to go and love them and to pray for them. It gets really difficult. And we're going to talk about that difficulty in a minute. But first I want to talk about love. What does he mean when he says love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? To love your enemy doesn't mean we have romantic feelings about them. To love our enemy is to self-sacrificially seek their best interest. And so our best example of love in the Bible is God's love towards us in Jesus. John 3, 16 and 17 lays it out really well. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believed in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world in order to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So God looked at the world. He loved the world. He saw the desperate need of the world that people were perishing and doomed for destruction. And he said, what I'm going to do out of my love is give what is most precious self-sacrificially give the thing that is in the best interest of the world, which is redemption and salvation through Jesus. And so for us to love our enemy is similar in pattern to what happened. We were enemies of God when he sent Jesus into the world. And so our enemies, what do we do? It doesn't mean we give them our research to steal. But what it means is we seek their best interest. We pray for those who are persecuting us. You pray for their salvation. You pray that God would bless them. You desire, you will for their good. And insofar as it is possible for you to, to work towards their good, to do that. 
It's radically different than retaliation. It's radically different than abiding in anger. And I think it is virtually impossible apart from God. When I first became more dedicated in my faith and I was rereading scripture for the first time in a long time, and I came across Matthew 5, and I read through the Sermon on the Mount, and I looked and I said, wow, that is just almost impossible. But okay, Lord, this means it's going to be really hard, and we've really got to work after this, and we've really got to get after it. And then a few chapters later, Jesus says, uh, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's saying, the religious obligation that I put on you isn't very difficult. Like, wait a minute, you just said be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect, you're telling me to love my enemy, to not look after people uh, lustfully, to keep all of my, my words and never lie. And then you tell me it's easy. I said, BS. <laughs> like, either the Bible isn't true and this doesn't work or I'm not seeing something. And... I kind of, as I was pressing into this and trying to figure out, I got this picture in my mind's eye of a rosebud. So imagine a rosebud all closed up, and now imagine like a rose that has bloomed. And when we read Matthew 5, and when we look at the life of Jesus, we see a bloomed rose. We see someone who is living in love, who is never lying who is treating people with the utmost respect and diligence, is perfectly oriented to God and their neighbor, who is actually praised for the people that kill him. So we have a bloomed rose. And then I look at my life, and it's, it was not a bloomed rose at this point at all. Total rosebud, like lots of problems. And I felt like there's two ways to get to the bloomed life. And one is to go from the outside and take each petal and try to put it in its right place. I am not going to lie. I'm going to seek for reconciliation. I'm going to love my enemy. I'm going to do this. And from the outside, we can use our own strength to try to get that rose into this Matthew 5 flourishing life with God position. But if we do it from the outside, what are you going to be left with? You're not going to have a bloomed rose. You're going to have like a mangled, half-beaten, like little lump of flower petals. But if you take that same rose and you put it into water, what happens is over the course of days and weeks, water will go up the stem and into the rosebud and it will gently, over time, begin to open. And it will blossom from the inside out. And to get from the outside all of your rose petals adjusted is impossibly difficult and won't work. But it is actually easy and light as a rose to rest in the living water. And the call for us is to abide in the life of God to rest in him, to allow his life to come up through us. Scripture tells us it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And that our job as Christians is not to carefully orchestrate every external circumstance of our lives through our own strength and power because it is impossible. And I think Jesus points out the fact that it is impossible to love our enemies and pray for them, actually love them out of our own strength. It is impossible. And if you think it is possible, he then says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect, just to, just to push it over the edge. Say, so we can't do it. We cannot manipulate our life from the outside hard enough to manifest the life of Jesus for the world. But we can abide in his life. We can rest in his life. We can allow his life by his spirit to come out and transform us from the inside out. And it requires some effort, but it is a completely different kind of effort than trying to get the pedals sorted out. The kind of effort it takes is to make sure you are rooted in the living water, to fix your attention on the one whose life it is that is going to be manifested in your life, to fix your attention on the living water and to commune with Jesus so that he can be the one that transforms your life and your affections, that can bring the healing that is necessary that can bring the freedom from bondage to evil that is necessary, that can bring the salvation that is necessary. When we fix our attention on him and his life, that is what can grow and manifest in our lives. But when we fix our attention on the half-formed rosebud and how unflourishing it is, when that is the first place of attention and really trying to work there, that is what our focus is. It is on ourselves rather than on God. And I don't know about you, but I know when I fix my attention on myself first, it's pretty uninspiring. I see a lot of areas that are in need of redemption and in need of trust and where I am weak. But when I fix my attention on Jesus, what I see is his strength and his life and his love coming in and meeting those places of weakness in my own life and heart. And, and transforming me, sometimes even when I don't realize it, transforming my heart, transforming my prayers, transforming my actions from the inside. And so I want to encourage you guys today that the source of this new life is God. It is his spirit. When we fix our mind on the flesh, it is death. But when we fix our mind on the spirit, it is righteousness and it is life. In Galatians 5, we see this picture of the fruit of the spirit. When you abide in his Holy Spirit lives in you and your attention is there, what comes out, what your life bears is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. But when you fix your mind and your attention on your flesh as the first thing, what comes out is anger and malice and frustration and licentiousness and all of this stuff. And so I do want to call for you guys to love your enemies. I do want to encourage you guys to be the first one to go and seek re reconciliation, to go after the wrongs that you have committed and try to make them right. I want to encourage you away from anger and into the difficulty of pressing in in intimacy to sort out the problems between you and your brothers and sisters. But I want to encourage you to do that in the power of God and in his life, not in your own strength.
because he will provide the strength and the life and the wisdom that is necessary in order to do that. So we're going to take communion together now. If y'all want to get that ready, that would be great. And um, as we do that, it's this brilliant reminder of even this truth. But the night before he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. When you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood in the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of many. And what's so fascinating about this is when he said, this is my flesh and this is my blood, take it. It's wild because what is the body? What is the flesh? But it is muscle. And he is inviting us to take his strength in place of our weakness. In all throughout the Old Testament, it says, you shall not drink the blood of the animal for the blood is its life. And so to a Jewish audience, blood was always off limits because it represented the life of the animal and people would never drink that blood. But Jesus says here, take my life, put my life inside of you in place of that death that you are carrying. So as you take communion today, I want to encourage you to think about planting your life, planting your rose stem into the living water that is God and allowing his life to take root and to grow into those places of anger, into those places of resentment, into the places where you need to see his love and joy and peace begin to manifest. Oh, to grace, how great a day.